0: Follow in the footsteps of the Cartier Panther with the Ponthère de Cartier Jewellery Collection. A creative signature of the Maison, the Cartier Panther has been reinvented time and time again since her first sighting in 1914. Magnetic, feline and wild, she is a force to be reckoned with, evolving with each design. Unbox the newest pieces in the Ponthère de Cartier Collection at Cartier.com.
1: more you say no, the more you say yes to yourself.
0: Welcome to Shattering the Glass Ceiling, a podcast from the team at The Art Angle, where we speak to boundary-breaking women in the art world and beyond about how art has shaped their lives and careers. I'm Noor Brara, the art and design editor at Artnet News, and the fourth in a rotating cast of hosts. For the last and final episode of this four-podcast miniseries, I have the pleasure of speaking with Marianne Ibrahim, the illustrious dealer of African and African diaspora art at her eponymous Chicago Gallery. Later this summer, in September, Ibrahim will open her first outpost and second space in Paris. Marianne, it's lovely to have you on the show today. How are you and where are you calling from at the moment?
1: I'm great, Noor. Thanks for having me. I am in Chicago. I just arrived yesterday from Paris, getting used to a situation of moving back and forth. So
0: I'm excited to get to that part about setting up your Paris space, but sort of to backtrack a little bit, you were born in Noumea, the capital of New Caledonia, which is not so far from Brisbane in Australia. You moved to Somalia when you were five and moved again three years later to France. I'm curious how you feel your childhood experiences in navigating so many different cultures has informed your appreciation of the arts.
1: Well, it has been inherent, you know, I mean, you don't realize until you are faced with certain realities When you're a kid, you don't look at those questions of identity or geography because you just want to play, you just want to be with other kids and you have the comfort and the love and the protection of your parents. So basically you're navigating all of these spaces Without much of a care of the world and how the world is, because it's so insular, especially when you're born in an island, you kind of uh, shut down from the rest of the world. And when my family went back to Somalia, where I felt great energy in being in a place where people look like me, where even though it was very cosmopolitan in Numea, but you kind of uh, are put into another space where... All I remember during my childhood in Somalia is all of the love and also f- seeing that the society over there were more matriarchal. Mm. The boss was my grandmother, my mother, and it was like I was surrounded by a lot of feminine energy. So as a little girl, it gives you a lot of a confidence because I really was raised in an environment that truly appreciated and put women in a place that often is stereotyped within a context of an African Muslim country. Women over there were educated, liberated, but it was really that inspiration from women who were going to school. I remember when I was a kid, I was too young to go to the secondary school. And I was seeing these girls coming down the hill and walking through our home. And they were all dressed the same way. They were chanting and marching like a little, you know, kind of a little girl army. I used to wake up early and wait for them to come and Mm. grab a book and just walk behind them, you know, until they go to school. And I think that memories of being in a place where I was included in a place where I felt I was visible and invisible at the same time, visible by my personality, because I was always this funny kid, but invisible in the sense where I didn't have to deal with any issue related to identity. And I think it's when I came to France where I felt a total disruption. And I really, really felt that disconnection from my childhood as if something was taken and stolen from me. It's kind of a turning point. Until then, you kind of lose that innocence. And once it's broken, there's no point fixing anything. And then you have to accept to be fluid, you know. So the detachment allowed me to be more... I would say free and and creative sort of lead to different paths that I would not normally look if I stay there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like you had total immersion and total understanding and then kind of the opposite of that right away, which must have been stark, as you say, but kind of freeing in a sense, because you learn to just kind of navigate and be fluid.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And can you tell me if you can recall your earliest memory of encountering art in a significant
1: way? I grew up in Bordeaux and the surroundings of Bordeaux, which right. is an interesting place, uh, very rich in the transatlantic, I mean, slave trade <laughs> story. There's really great attributes in the French education. First, public schools over there are probably better than private schools. So that equal opportunity of accessing education was something that I immediately recognized and valued and think that that is probably the tool that I have to get out of a situation because... That is up to my performance. And in school, France has a very strong, very much documented, visible history. So we used to go in those streets and trying to figure out what were the buildings from and what kind of a period they were built, ornamented, decorated, a lot of churches. And I think the first encounters that I had was really on the, all of those public spaces and their craft that made me realize that there was a very strong dedication and beauty in making, and that beauty and craft coexist within the space. So today, if you take me on the street, I can tell you what is from the 18th century, 19th century, up to the 20th century, because I've been traumatized by looking at all of this balcony in an historical way when we were a kid. And also when I was there, it was the bicentennial of the revolution. In 1989, there was a lot of effervescence around the history of France, the revolution and, and how the influence and, you know, the country of the free and the liberty and equality and all of that was really something that I immediately was sort of into. And when you study, you go into the paintings, you go into the 16 classical French paintings as well. So I was very much, not necessarily through my environment family or friends because I was too young to have a friend to take me to a museum. But I think the school did a great introduction to the museums and history of France. That sort of led me into a more curiosity and discovering the role of the museums in the construction of identity, sort of a national identity, but also how people would look at other cultures. And I think that that sort of a perception of the West to other cultures, such as African or Oceanic, it's pretty linear. I mean, it's not even questionable. It's just they're actually creating you to juxtapose two different continents and have the same gaze on these two opposite cultures. And so that was the first time that I was confronted with my identity through the Western canon of how they look at universal history. Right. And I see on one end the oceanic art and I see the African art. And I'm here in the middle, in the same room where you have the same artifacts, textile, right. in the same room of African and oceanic. I remember that the travel was pretty long from Nubia to Somalia, which I right. didn't understand how they would come into the same place. So, that were also a reveal of the disconnection that I had in the way people would look at the places where I grew up. Because I didn't identify with any of these objects. So I guess from that moment, I started to realize that something was off in the storytelling. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Jumping off from that, how did you come to pursue art as a career? And how did you make that sort of professional
1: decision? I didn't have the luxury to choose to work in the art. It didn't feel to me that it was a possibility. It was a very secular closed environment. It was not something that was welcoming at all. And you don't realize the trauma until you reach to a point where you dealing with people who are appreciative that the work that we do also impact on the way they're looking at not only the art but any other possible career. So I would say it really hit me in the face of doing something about it in the broader sense as a collective. If I keep complaining about the way people look at the art, especially the art that are present in the African continent, if I keep complaining about it, that is because there is no will to change the narrative. And I had either two positions. I'm an outsider and I just continue to critique, or I just go in and trying to really bring some other directions of the arts to the public. My introduction to the art went to the more intangible art because I did a brief career in the archaeological world, which came through a rejection of a group of French archaeologists who came to Somaliland, where my family and I are from. And they just went to a site and they decided that they just discovered a monument and a site that has been there for 4,000 years before Jesus Christ. How do you discover something that was always there, a place where I used to play when I was a kid. And that was a total rejection for me to say, you cannot own this. And I was, you know, living a quiet, youthful life in Paris. And that just hit me in the face. When I saw the publication, I just booked a ticket and I went there. And the idea was to say, you cannot. I will reject that you take ownership of a heritage that belongs to my people. No way. Yes. And so that led to a path mm. that was working into the recognition of the sites, working with the locals, working with the universities, working with the archaeologists. And I just immerse into that environment. I probably would have stayed in that world if it wasn't too politicized. So I left a door open to do other things. And then when I was confronted with the contemporary art scene in Paris, this is where I realized it was much easier than dealing with archaeological sites, you know. So it wasn't really a path that I pursued and said, this is exactly what I wanted. You know, it sort of started with history, then culture, and now art. And those three were very instrumental in sharing the way I perceive
0: art. Absolutely. Moving from that point, I remember you telling me once that when you decided to open your galleries in the U.S., you wanted to do so in cities where the markets weren't already saturated, where work by international artists could really make a difference in the local culture and community more generally. To kind of look at your arc, you opened your gallery first in Seattle in 2012 and then in Chicago in 2019, where your program has grown to include some of the foremost African and African diaspora artists working today. You personally have also been hailed many times as the most important dealer of artists from these regions and one of the most influential now young dealers writ large. I'm curious, just what is it like to reflect back on this journey?
1: Certain events were too rapid for me to sort of think and say, this is what I want to do. And uh, I guess a Seattle episode was an opportunity to be in a place that I would not necessarily choose. Mm -hmm. I would say Seattle chose me. And it wasn't really... A place where I felt an immediate recognition or embrace, but it created something much more relevant when I look at the art today. You're off the perimeters of the artwork. And that was the best preparation that I could come up with, because it allowed you to not listen to the noise, to kind of stay focused, to work on your program, to try to be creative, to simply present art for what it is, just art. And there was not a commercial pressure of it. Time to time I would open a show and I would know it would not sell. Obviously there was ambition, but to do with little means. And I will say that every art dealer remember those days. And those days were very important and they were part of the foundation. Yeah, I was polyvalent and I was doing everything in the space. But when you're by yourself, you want to show that you're 10 people. And when you're 10 people, you want to show you're just one. (laughs) But Seattle really created a very strong foundation to be able to watch what was going on elsewhere, allowed me to travel to places because no one would come. So I would be creating these networks that at the end made sense. At the beginning, it didn't make sense. I would just go to Cape Town and London and Turin and Dubai and Mexico City and and Paris and London just to go and do those art fairs until I realized that we were a very small circle of art lovers and you Mm -hmm. then create that uh, network.
0: As a dealer, you are known to be quite protective of the artists that you work with, which is an incredible list that includes artists like Amawaka Boafo, Clotilde Jimenez, and Ayana V. Jackson. How have you been able to cultivate a safe and supportive
1: environment for these artists that you work with? It's a partnership. It comes with an understanding that comes with listening. And in every partnership, there's duties, there's things that I have to provide and things that they have to also provide. But it comes really with a common vision, And sort of accompany that vision with the artist. An artist like Cotilde Jimenez is a clear. Representation on the way we work and nurture with artists because it goes beyond that aspect of the commercial side. It goes within their contribution to the history of art and how they can be important actor in there and not just passing through. And that also the art market has speed up and the collectors is also taken into this world of fast decisions and you got to move really quick and. Artists have to constantly create and provide. But the place of display, it's it's sacred to me. We've never had a show with Clotilde until last year. And we've been working together for more than three, four years. And it's about planning and it's about taking time and preparing. And when I see artists doing exhibitions so fast, right after their degree, it can have some side effects because you're not mature enough. You need to explore the world. You need to travel. You need to try different residents and try different things as well. And I think if I had exhibited him when he was coming out of school and the work that he has created, it wouldn't have been as strong. Patience is really one of the quality and also the defect that I have because often people don't feel like they need to wait that long. But things have been very transparent and clear with the artist. The next show is the work of Ruby on Manze, and that is even longer. We've been working with her for almost six years. And in a couple of weeks, we will have her first solo show. And that has been a mutual understanding of when it's right. When is it right for us to do a show together? And what is the narrative and what is the contribution? And I'm so determined, but also demanding in that they provide the best quality work and the best storytelling. And if it is an exhibition every three or four or five years, I'm happy with that. But it is probably what differentiate us from maybe other younger galleries who are in the rush of constantly showing and showing. It's the risk of patience. We are very connected with serious collectors and art patrons who are investing mm. in our journey. In many ways, and not only financially, but they are investing in building the narrative. And we've had really great experiences with the collectors who also wanted to protect the artists that we work with. Because it's not in their interest at all that an artist is going in a path that would not allow the artist to develop fully.
0: I love that. And it's great to be able to work with people also that you share that ethos with. Since you mentioned it, obviously in September, you'll be opening a new space in Paris, which is in many ways seeing a sort of art renaissance right now in the wake of Brexit. Why did you decide to open a Paris gallery? And how are you feeling about opening a space in a city that you spend a lot of time in?
1: It was going to happen. I was just resisting the idea of going to Paris. (laughs) It was going to happen because there is this sort of um, love affair that I had with Paris where kind of a left in 2010, with the idea that I would never return. And somehow it was just pulling me back. Paris is the place where I had great and fun memories. But there was uh, some challenges and difficulties. I mean, culturally, th- that often in Paris, there's not the same attention to entrepreneurship and diversity. And you cannot really expect that they will be handing that to you on a silver plate. So being in America right. sort of uh, gave me the confidence to embrace not only the entrepreneurship, but also to embrace that I want to present this art and this art are from the African diaspora. And it mm. does not much matter what you think of it. <laughs> you know, It was more like, I really don't care about the opinion that you have because what I'm more interested in is how collectors and the general public might connect with works that they would not normally find either in the media or in the institution Mm -hmm. or in other public spaces. And that was really what sort of got me out of Paris because I felt that it's not conceivable for me to demand that the art scene reflect my cultural background there's so many diversity, and for me to say that it isn't because it doesn't exist was problematic. It exists, mm. but it's not shown. It was one of the reason why I was comfortable going to the u s and this is also the reason to come to Paris is because now i'm much more comfortable to share and to expose different narratives and we don't only work with African diaspora this is what we have. None, but we also work with artists from different backgrounds and different countries. And the idea of the African diaspora is also has a lot of a multiplicity. An Afro-French is different from an African-American. It's different from an Afro-Brazilian or an Afro-Caribbean. And I think our ambition is to have a foot in the Afrocentricity, and with the other foot, sort of a cover the other cultures that the African diaspora or descendant has been confronted it's actually interesting to see the subtle differentiations culturally from different countries between an African diaspora descent born in Germany versus one born in Italy. I'm kind of a, right. into that more than this is black versus white, you know? right. because that I really don't care about that part. I only yeah, care within course. the subcategories of the African descent stories and how one is connected to the other. So Paris has been a a city that had embraced many movements where African-American would find refuge, especially artists. Mm. It is a place where there has been a second and third generation of African descent that are also evolving and developing their craft in France, whether in the cinema, music, food and so on at an excellent level and so paris is witnessing a great renaissance not only in mm. the art but i think paris is also becoming the capital of diversity and the capital right. of that afrocentricity that will welcome different voices and paris is one of the most beautiful city everywhere yeah, you walk probably. everywhere you are it's sort of a reminiscent of a great aesthetic and yeah. being in the avenue matignon is even more historical because it used to be the art scene of the 60s. I'm overwhelmed and excited. I can't believe it's happening. And I'm very excited to welcome the artist. And I would say that it's for them because this is years of collaboration. This is years of partnership. Yeah, this is my thank you for their companionship, trust, loyalty, and to be able to have their work critique and seen in a different context than the US, which they have always been accustomed to.
0: That's wonderful. That's such an incredible story. And congratulations to you. I can't wait to see how everything shapes up when you open. I know I am and certainly our listeners are curious about how you've kind of been able to so confidently over the years carve out your ethos, carve out your vision for your program. So what is the best advice you could give kind of a younger version of yourself entering into the art world today
1: that our listeners might learn from as well? I didn't mention patience, but the other part is integrity. There would be many offerings to take and they are many temptations that you might have with the career and with the work and with the art, because it's sort of a specific and narrowed environment. I would say for me, it's the more you say no, the more you say yes to yourself. And that was really what guided me in saying there was something better. If you pass, it's okay. It's something else that is coming. Right. Yeah.
0: I think that's excellent advice. And then sort of in turn, what's the best advice you feel
1: you've ever been given? Don't have too much art stock. (laughs) 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 Try to be, that was one of the dealers who gave me the best advice was like, you don't need to stock all of this art. If you have way too much, return back to the artist. Don't accumulate. You know, have a clean art storage is the best advice that I have received. It's the foundation. I'm talking about commercially, I mean, having a storage to store your art because you bought the work and you love and you can't live with all of them, but you want to keep them and which is understandable. But if they are works that just sitting there, you got to have the conversation and within yourself, why do I have that? And also talk to the artists. Why do you have that? And what makes sense? And find creative ways of having the work being seen and moved and um, returned. Absolutely.
0: Obviously, we have had a crazy last year. That said, I wondered if you've seen an artwork or a show recently that kind of makes you remember why you do the work you do and why you're in this industry.
1: I think the reconnection with what I do and why I do, you know, the museums here are kind of a reopen as opposed to other places. So I spent a couple of hours at the Art Institute of Chicago you normally go to to see a specific exhibition and to socialize as well but this time I went to areas that I was not familiar with and just walk around and I felt extremely privileged to do what I'm doing because Mm -hmm. you're surrounded with important works and works that sort of trigger the way you you see the world and how you think But just to walk into those spaces reassured of what was coming next and how, as people, we can come around and celebrate. I was going to the gallery every day during the time of the COVID, and it's wonderful to be in a space where you receive work and you ship work and you look and you contemplate and you spend a day with the work before it goes. So I would say the museums where the spaces that I miss the most and I will definitely have a different perception now in going to those art temples and then walk back in time. A last show of Sergio Lucena, which is an abstract painter from Brazil, was also a sort of a quiet and calm moment that I didn't realize I needed because we've had so much work with dealing with sort of a figuration and dealing with historically charged narratives. But this was a sweet retreat to have the show in the gallery and sort of please a lot of our collectors because you kind of, each of his paintings, you sort of diving into an ocean. And sea and oceans are probably the things that I miss the most and I haven't seen for a while. I really appreciated the escape of the exhibition that we had last the time of the confinement also allowed to be present closer with the artist that's really great to hear as we move further into
0: 2021 how did you manage your work-life balance over the course of last year and what is one thing you've learned that you'd like to take forward and one thing you'd like to leave behind
1: I did a lot of reflection. I've read a lot of biographies of famous art dealers. It was really the intellectual approach of the art. I think there was a lot of that missing, and especially when it came to the African descent and black art, it feels like it was like gold rush, that like people have to have the work. But there was not much of a commentary, social or political commentary, an intellectual commentary on the work as they were presented to the audience. It was like an Instagram click and buy and go, you know? Mm. So we put some focus on working closer with the artists and trying to understand what are the references and the intuition and the intention of the artists over the work. We also launched our editions, which is also a different exercise. We've had a first edition with Amuaco. we have more coming with different medium. Mm-hmm. So giving the artist the possibility to express and to expand his practice onto different medium, It was that that we wanted to pursue more of this year. And what I would leave behind, I find it quite calm to not jump on a plane and go from one art fair to the other. And sort of uh, helped me focus on which one I want to focus and which one I want to continue to support and be with, you know, sort of a physical attendance. But I would say less business travelling would be ideal and more personal travelling would be better. During the time of the exhibitions, we were able to have a one-on-one conversation and by appointment. So it was a great exercise because you have this kind of a interpersonal interaction with the collector that you would not normally have. Definitely. More
0: meaningful in-person connection and, and less kind of busy work is hopefully something that will come out of this period. And I guess, Marianne, what are you looking forward to next, sort of more generally?
1: I'm excited about the show of Ruby on Yen and and have a great and successful show. I'm looking forward to Paris, obviously to open the space and to welcome our artists because we will inaugurate the exhibition with a group show with all of the artists present in the gallery. Yeah, I can't wait for all of the borders to be reopened. Family, lovers, business, partners, being able to see each other, reconnected. And I hope that we will not forget about this episode because we tend to kind of a move on and nothing happened, but this was clearly um, a test for our humanity and um, survival. Yeah, I can't wait for everything to come back to a new normal.
0: Absolutely. Marianne, thank you so much for your time. This was such a wonderful conversation and to learn about your story and where you're headed next, it all sounds really exciting. So again, just really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Noah, for the time. Thank you for listening to Shattering the Glass Ceiling. Be sure to check out the rest of the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Shattering the Glass Ceiling is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein.